0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the imperiled future of Utah's newest national monument. Meet Mel Johnson Jr., the actor bringing the story of Frederick Douglass to Tucson's invisible theater. And author Edie Jirolam shares some intimate stories from her career as a travel writer. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On one of former President Obama's last days in office, he used his authority under the Antiquities Act to protect 1.35 million acres surrounding a pair of buttes in southern Utah called Bears Ears. While some tribal leaders are celebrating the monument designation, many Utah citizens, including some Navajos, are protesting. For Fronteras, Laurel Morales reports as part of her series Earth and Bone.
1: On a recent windy day, I drive to southern Utah to see the new monument for myself. A snowy fog lifts to reveal an enchanting landscape. Red rock spires, hoodoos, stone arches, and towering pinnacles. It's no wonder this place is called the Valley of the Gods. This land is protected under an executive order, but if some members of Congress have their way, it won't be. And under federal statute, this land, where the Anasazi people lived before the time of Christ, could legally be sold. My guide here is Navajo elder Jonah Yellowman.
2: I'm a a spiritual advisor. A medicine man is different. He's higher than me on the second grade level.
1: (laughs) Bears Ears National Monument looks just like it sounds. A giant bear's head emerging from the ground.
2: So we're right in the middle of the two viewings. And it's like a door right there," he said. "That's that's our connection right there. We talk to nature, you know. That's a doorway right there. Yeah. When we say bear's ears, he listens to us. These these uh these trees come out here. You make an offering, and you you put your you put your hand on it like that.
1: Yellowman holds the branch of a juniper tree as if he's shaking hands with it
2: and says, I want to be strong like you. You stand throughout the winters. We talk to these trees. When the breeze comes through, they talk to us. Sometimes when you're out there, when you're by yourself, you can feel something over here. You can hear something. Sometimes you look over there and it's like a shrine right here. It's a holy place, you know.
1: Several tribes come here for ceremony. Sacred sites are connected to stories of creation, danger, protection, and healing. At the end of a windy, unmarked trail, Yelloman picks up a piece of Anasazi pottery laying on the ground. Oh, wow.
2: So as you walk around, you find something everywhere.
1: Bears Ears is rich with such artifacts, rock art, and cliff dwellings. There are more than 100,000 archaeological sites. That's one of the reasons Obama decided to protect it. Jim Enote is a farmer and a director of a Zuni Museum and Heritage Center. He says Bears Ears contains a library of knowledge.
3: Bears Ears helps us to connect the dots of our history and our ancestors' experiences. And those places, those homes or those shrines and altars, when they were built, they were consecrated. And once they were consecrated, they were consecrated for life.
1: Eno remembers a recent visit when he came across an old village. He made offerings much like people would at a cemetery with flowers. Then he noticed someone had carved into the petroglyphs and dug into a dwelling wall.
3: How could anybody do something like that? We wouldn't do that at a cemetery. Of course not. If people are able to respect places like cemeteries or war memorials or war battlefields, places that are sacred to many people, why can't they afford us the same kind of respect and civility?
1: It is a sacred place. It's sacred to all of us. Angela Hurst grew up in Blanding in Utah's San Juan County, visiting Bears Ears almost every weekend. She can even see it from her backyard.
2: That's it, right there. We see it every day. It's part of our home.
1: We sit on Hearst's front porch swing, where you can hear kids playing outside the elementary school down the road. The town of about 3,700 is mostly made up of Mormons who settled here after they were chased out of Mexico for polygamy. Hearst and many of her neighbors don't want a national monument. They worry their farming and ranching land will be taken away. If you look at Blanding on a map, you'll see it's surrounded by public land. I'm afraid that making a monument takes it away from us makes it so much less accessible to the regular people many in Blanding don't trust the federal government twice the FBI decided to crack down on the community for selling stolen artifacts the feds raided 16 homes and trading posts in the mid 80s then two decades later came back Hearst walks me down the street to point to three of her neighbors homes where arrests were made they all had guns drawn and i and I thought, what in the heck is going on here? I thought it was unconscionable. They're in their 70s. The FBI arrested more than two dozen people, including the town doctor and his wife, Jim and Jeannie Redd. The judge told Jeannie she faced up to 35 years in prison if convicted. The day after the Reds were released from custody, Jim Red committed suicide. He delivered half of my kids two other people involved in the raid also killed themselves. Many people believe when you take a sacred artifact, you're cursed. San Juan County Commissioner Phil Lyman says Blanding hasn't been the same since.
3: So the town was was heartbroken and, and broken, period.
1: Lyman was arrested recently too, not for pot hunting, but for leading an ATV ride in protest of a federal government plan to shut down a county road leading to federal land. Lyman says the Bureau of Land Management gave him permission to do the ride.
3: I've never tried to exceed my defined authority, and and I wish the federal government could say the same thing because they are constantly pushing the bounds of their jurisdiction, their authority, their their legal reach.
1: Lyman and his colleague, Rebecca Bennelli, who's Navajo, have fought the monument designation, saying local leaders should manage this land. Benelli says environmental groups coerce tribal leaders to lobby Washington. She spoke at a meeting last year with Utah's congressional delegation.
4: How dare these special interest groups speak for us as if we can't speak for ourselves. We depend on these lands for our living, our worship and cultural traditions. We do not support any movement to convert our sacred lands to a monument that will ultimately be controlled by bureaucrats who is totally out of touch with our history and our way of life.
1: Many Utah Navajos fear they won't be allowed access to the monument to chop wood or gather medicinal plants. Obama, in his proclamation, calls for an advisory group made up of local leaders and a tribal commission to help federal officials manage the monument. Still, Benali is not convinced.
4: Empirical evidence would suggest we should not be so quick to believe these promises.
1: For years, Republican lawmakers have tried to gut the 1906 Antiquities Act, but never had enough support behind the effort. John Leshy is Professor Emeritus of Law at the University of California, Hastings. He says there's a whole new political landscape to consider, now with Republican control of Congress and the White House. We talk by phone.
2: Bottom line is Congress can do whatever it wants to. Congress can rescind the Monument Proclamation Congress can sell off all the lands if it wants to. By simple statute, there's nothing in the Constitution that protects those lands. But we'll see.
1: Leshy says for Congress to be tinkering with a law that's protected so many national treasures is politically risky. I'm Laurel Morales reporting from Southern Utah.
0: That story was part of a series produced by Laura Morales for Fronteras called Earth and Bone. You can find more at fronterasdesk.org. From his passion for self-education to escaping slavery to becoming an ambassador and advisor to President Abraham Lincoln, the course of Frederick Douglass' life had a unique trajectory and left a lasting influence. Accomplished stage and screen actor Mel Johnson Jr. will bring Douglass' story to life on stage in Tucson this weekend as a guest of the Invisible Theater. I talked with Johnson about how the one-man play Frederick Douglass in The Shadow of Slavery was created and how he first became aware of the man and his legacy.
3: Frederick Douglass was always a part of the fabric of what you learned in school and history, but you never really learned. I never really understood anything about him. I just knew his name, you know. You just and you had that image of this magnificent black man with this lion's mane of hair, and that he was an advisor to Lincoln. That's about as much as I really understood. Tom Dugan, who wrote this piece, uh, and I are really good friends. And I, Tom, had written a one-man show based on his own life called Oscar to Oscar, and I directed that. And then he said, I'm going to write a piece about Frederick Douglass. And I said, oh, really? And are you going to do it in blackface? He laughed. And he goes, no, I'm writing it for you. And I went, hey, one-man shows, they're so difficult you know, to be compelling. And I sort of found a way with Tom. So I said, well, Tom, let's see. So he started writing it. And he would send it to me as he was going along. And that's when I really found out how compelling Frederick Douglass was. And what he did and the reasons why we are talking about him now, how he really believed in working within the system to get things done. And before Obama, you know, I was aligning him with Colin Powell because, you know, he sort of got used like Colin Powell did, President Hayes. So it was this fascinating story.
0: What part of Douglass's life does the play cover? Because from slave to abolitionist to statesman, there's so much ground to cover and so many things to absorb. How did you and Tom Dugan choose what part to shine a light on?
3: Well, what was wonderful is it takes place when he's the minister to Haiti, and he is re-editing his third draft of his autobiography, so it gives us license to really cover his entire life. So we bookend with him in a sort of timeless state, in a spotlight, talking about progress and compromise. Did I really make a difference in this world? And then we choose aspects and times in his life. So we talk about how he escaped from slavery, You know how he became an abolitionist. A newspaper editor. So we deal with all of these issues with the framework of using his autobiography to take us through this. So it really works very well and uh, it gets very personal and we really get a chance to understand who this man really was for the audience. You know, he was quite the orator, quite uh, the entertainer in the sense that he used humor a lot in getting his point across. And we fill in how he must have felt when he goes to Britain and how he was treated there and the the contrasts between the two countries.
0: In brief, how was Frederick Douglass received in England?
3: Oh, unbelievably. He'd never had that kind of reception. And we deal with it specifically. I give an instance of what happened to him in Boston when he encountered a young white woman in contrast to when he gets off and, in Ireland and how the white people just you know, rushed to take his hand because they understood oppression and uh, they knew they had a kindred spirit in him. So he was invited to speak all over Britain, Ireland, Scotland. And I point up the fact that uh, uh, supporters in Scotland actually paid for his freedom sending the money back to Maryland. And that's how he became really free.
0: Obviously, Frederick Douglass was a very intelligent man. But where did this quest for education and his sort of almost never-ending desire to better himself and to learn come from?
3: This is exactly one of the things that is in the show. He goes to Baltimore as an eight-year-old. And fortunately for him, He's the companion of a little white boy named Tommy. And he hears his mistress, who had never owned a slave before, reading from the Bible. And this is, you know, a lot of this is drawn from his writings. It just struck him that this was something that he wanted to learn. And she started teaching him. And once she started, he was just infused with the need to learn. And then when Of course, it goes awry, you know, the master says, you it's against the law. If you learn them to read, as he says, he'll become unfit to be a slave. And he said, well, if that's what it takes, that's what I'm going to do. And he did everything he could, you know, to learn how to read and write and uh, coupled that with being whipped and realizing that through education, it provided that freedom. That precise question is so important. And that's one of the wonderful sections of the play.
0: What words would you use to describe Frederick Douglass' relationship with Abraham Lincoln?
3: It grew because at first he was not a fan of Abraham Lincoln's. In his newspaper, he called him a genuine representative of American prejudice. But it wasn't until he met with him the first time that he realized that Abraham Lincoln really felt... That if slavery was not wrong, nothing was wrong. So he looked at him in some ways as a mentor, in the sense that a lot of his ideas about progress and compromise, these were Lincoln's ideas also. So he used him as an advisor, and then Lincoln learned immensely what it was to be. A soldier in the Civil War, fighting and receiving half salary, does he face half the danger? Is he half a man? So these were the kinds of things that Frederick Douglass learned from this thing, and he actually grew to really love Abraham Lincoln. And I say that in the play, I mean because he comes away from the right, you know from the White House from that first meeting, he had an honest conversation with the president of the United States. The first thing he did, Lincoln did, was shut his mouth and listen to Douglas. So these are things you don't expect from a white man in general and then from the president of the United States. It was just, it was that was the kind of relationship that he had with Lincoln. It was one of honesty and respect.
0: Uh, just recently, some comments were made by President Donald Trump that um, seem to imply that, um, well, I don't know if I want to say that, but let's put it this way. Well, uh,
3: no, no, it seemed to imply that, you know, I'm still alive, that Frederick <laughs> Douglass is still alive. I'm thrilled to make my, you know, my resurgence, my resurrection here uh, on the stage in Tucson.
0: <laughs> Mel Johnson Jr. performs Frederick Douglass in the Shadow of Slavery this Saturday evening at 7.30 and Sunday afternoon at 3 at the Berger Performing Arts Center. Tickets are available at invisibletheater.com. Transplanted Tucsonan Edie Jerolum describes herself as a freelance writer, editor, and gadabout. Her new book, Getting Naked for Money, An Accidental Travel Writer Reveals All, is a memoir with highlights for more than three decades as a travel writer, with adventures set in Mexico, the United Kingdom, and Egypt, among other places, including an eye-opening stop at a clothing-optional resort in Palm Springs.
4: Let's go for the subtitle first so people uh, don't get entirely the wrong impression. It's an accidental travel writer reveals all. So it's it's a metaphor, but it's an actual incident of going to a nudist resort on assignment for a woman's magazine. So the first chapter of the book tells the story of how I got an assignment for more magazine to go to a uh, nudist resort of my choice, because I guess at that time new travel was sort of trendy, and so I I was asked to go there. Undercover, as it were, <laughs> and uncovered. Ironic, yes. <laughs> yes. So um, it was a strange experience and one that I couldn't entirely tell the truth about in the magazine article. So um, so that's, that's where the title comes from.
0: There's a few dozen adventures in the book, all told, but does the Nudist Camp experience still rate as one of your strangest adventures?
4: Absolutely. <laughs> it's something that... If you had told me, you know, when I decided I wanted to be a writer, that I would take my clothes off in public and go to a nudist resort, I would have said, Are you kidding? I'm not the most modest person in the world, but I'm also not the type of person who would consider myself that adventurous, but I discovered that I am that adventurous when it came to getting a good story.
0: What percentage of your career as a writer has been based around travel writing?
4: I mean, it's hard to say because I was always somewhat of a generalist and I, I dabbled in a lot of different topics, but um, it's really only been since I moved to Tucson that I was a, became a travel writer. Um, so that was 1992. And till... 2004, I was pretty much full-time travel writer. Um, that was my primary genre of writing. So
2: It
0: sounds like travel came easily to you. There weren't a whole lot of anxieties for you to overcome to pursue this job or were there?
4: There are always anxieties. I mean, I'm... I'm for some of us. Yeah, I, I should say there's in certain ways an irony that somebody who was anxious about travel um, and, you know, anxious about... Pretty much everything um, should end up traveling for a living, but, um, you know, it was compounded by worry that I wouldn't do the assignments right, that I had to prove myself at every time, and, you know, getting there at the right time, getting there at the right place. I didn't understand the distances involved in a lot of cases. You know, and the more I did it, the more I realized I enjoyed traveling on my own because I didn't have to worry about other people that I traveled with not enjoying what I needed to do. But you um, pick
0: up friends along the way. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> one of the entertaining things is the the revolving sidekicks yes. that, that come in and out. So uh, tell us about one of your so-called travel sidekicks and, and how that came to be.
4: Well, my friend Terry, um, who... Was the first person I met in Tucson. Really, she worked at um, Flandro, and she was a PR person there. And she was the best PR person in that she was not, she was not the queen of spin. She was very honest. She knew her subject matter. Completely back and forth, and um, and she also knew Mexico because she grew up in Tucson in the Tucson area. So she was the one who who came down with me on two trips to the Copper Canyon. Once I went by myself, and and the second time I, I went with her, and um, we ended up at a town in the bottom of the uh, Copper Canyon called Batapilas, um, which sounded really great in the descriptions. And when we went down there, it was completely dry, and um, you know, one sad looking orange tree. I I guess it was described as lush and filled with wildlife. And maybe that happens at different times in the year, but not when we went down there.
0: I feel like in the book that Egypt comes across as a place that you found a lot of enthusiasm for.
4: I loved Egypt from the time I was a kid and went to the uh, Brooklyn Museum, which has a wonderful Egyptian collection. and uh, it's it's kind of sad the poor Brooklyn Museum. Well, now that Brooklyn is hip, maybe Brooklyn Museum has found its own, but it has one of the best Egyptian collections in the country, um, but compared to the Metropolitan Museum, just a subway right away, it's it's kind of overlooked. But when I was a kid, it was I went with my mother um, maybe once a month, and I just loved. The Egyptian halls. It was quiet and serene, and and these towering statues of pharaohs. And it was all very stylized. I love the way they looked. Also, the you know, in in the chaos that is you know growing up anywhere, and um, in Brooklyn, it was there was just something soothing about everything except for the mummies. Mummies were really creepy, and I tried not to look, but.
0: Uh, well, did contemporary Egypt uh, disappoint you, or did no, it live up to your dreams?
4: It did not disappoint me. I I won't say that it was exactly what I imagined. The pyramids of Giza are at the edge of Cairo. So it's kind of like if you imagine the pyramids being in Queens, (laughs) someplace in in the suburbs. But that's one vista that you look at. If you look in the other direction, um, there's this vast desert that could have looked like it looked thousands of years ago. And some places like Luxor and the tombs uh, were everything that I imagined because um, you walk into these vast temples and um, the buildings rising up above. And, you know, architecture over thousands of years. And um, it was, you know, it was chaotic. It was crazy. When you read about these places in books, it all seems very quiet. But that being said, um, just something about the desert which is probably why I'm here, and, and the Middle East, um, specifically in Egypt. I never quite understood why it felt like home, but it did. There is something about the desert that, you know, I always say maybe it was my people wandering for 40 years in the Sinai. It's somehow ingrained in my DNA.
0: And now Edie Jirolam shares an excerpt from her book.
4: We'd planned to have breakfast at Desert Shadows the following morning, a Monday, even though the idea of the staff accidentally spilling scalding coffee in my lap sounded no more appealing than brushing up against hot buffet stations. Finding the dining room shuttered, we went to the front desk, where we learned morning meals were served only on weekends. We would have to fend for ourselves until lunchtime. In fact, we were told that if we wanted to dine shade desert shadows in the evening, we would have to order our entrees in advance, and they would appear on our bill whether or not we turned up to eat them. Odd. Even odder. The only two main course options was steak and salmon. Didn't naturism and vegetarianism go hand in hand? Protonudists Adam and Eve had followed a plant-based diet before losing their innocence. Then again, they would have been better off on a strict paleo regimen, eschewing the apple and sauteing the serpent instead. Dinner order placed, Nicky and I got dressed and headed for a nearby coffee shop, picking up a few supplies for lunch, too, Finally, determined to survey a larger nudist sample, we took the plunge into the activities pool, which wasn't very active. Many of the weekend disrobers we'd observed the day before had defected, leaving only the hardcore nudists, mainly men in their 40s and up. I was relieved not to have to chat with any naked teenagers, but sorry that the current range of interview subjects was so narrow. Still, the natives were friendly— Nikki and I easily fell into conversation with a number of naked guys. We learned that we'd arrived too late on the previous day to catch the pool volleyball game, darn, and that we'd missed the -the in-the-buff karaoke on Saturday night, double darn. The revelation that we were nudism newbies brought out the solicitousness in the men who expressed several variations on the theme of you'll never want to go back to wearing clothes again but maybe it wasn't solicitous so much as salaciousness.
0: Edie Jirolam's new book is Getting Naked for Money, An Accidental Travel Writer Reveals All. She'll be one of hundreds of authors participating in the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books, which happens Saturday and Sunday, March 11th and 12th, on the University of Arizona campus. Also next week, Edie Jirolam begins teaching a five-week course in memoir writing at the Tucson Jewish Community Center, Information is available at tucsonjcc.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.